0: Hey, and welcome in to episode 82 of the House of L podcast. I'm the L of House of L. My name is Lawrence Holmes. I appreciate you listening to the podcast. I'm very excited about today's episode. Before I get to the intro for Joe Cowley, I just want to talk. I want to give him a a great thank you. One, for scheduling this, because trying to get Cowley on the podcast is it's difficult because he travels with the Bulls and he lives out of state, which you'll hear him talking about here. And why? I always wonder why. And now I know why uh, if that isn't enough of a tease for you. But we had the worst time trying to get something done. In the score studios, like occasionally, like I'll bring a guest over here or Callie's one of the people and you'll hear me talk about it. Like I probably should have just invited him to the house and just hung out there with him. Not that it meant that it wasn't going to be a more raw interview because he brings it and you'll hear it. But I want to give a special thank you to Rebecca Ortiz because here's what happened. I met Joe at like 7 o'clock. We were trying to get Russ's studio, Russ Matero, who does all the voiceover stuff for the score. That's usually where I would bring someone in because it's a little bit more of a comfortable space, like our update studio, which is where I'm actually doing the front and back of the podcast today can be a little bit cramped. So I, I like for people to have room to breathe, be comfortable, spread out like that sort of thing. When they're on the podcast, we waited for a long time for the computer to boot up. And I don't know what was going on, but I, I, sometimes I screw stuff up. So I went and asked Herb Lawrence. I was like, Hey, Herbie, can you help me out? So Herbie came in. It was a Monday night football game. And we were waiting for the computer for like 20 minutes. And I'm like, I I can't waste this opportunity and try to reschedule with Joe. Like, I need to, I need to have a room. So we went over to B96. Their PD, Eric Bradley, was in his office, which is great because he was in there late. And I was like, listen, I need a studio. And B96 is not really set up for talk show format. He's like, well, there's a couple that are available. Go for it. And Rebecca was like the only person. He's like, I don't know how this stuff works. And Rebecca came in like she was doing her shift on B96. And she came and she set the studio up for us. And it worked out. And it was great. So I want to thank her for making it happen. I need to go get her something. I need to get her a candle or something to to thank her. But it was super nice of her to do that. And it, it made, it made uh, me not look like a complete idiot. Because I felt like a complete idiot. Inviting Joe in, we had scheduled this weeks and weeks in advance for this one particular night when he was going to be available. And then, you know, the studio doesn't necessarily work. So, we had a great time talking. Um, I'll give this disclaimer before we get to the interview. Joe is his own man. And I really enjoy him. He's someone in this business that I've gravitated towards. We are like-minded, but our approach is definitely different. Um, I'm a little bit more of a, what's the Bonnie Bernstein line? I'm a little bit more of a velvet hammer. And Joe is a sledgehammer and a machine gun and a machete and a thermonuclear warhead. We agree more than we disagree, but we do disagree about a lot of things. And that's the great thing about Joe is that he'll go back and forth with you on all sorts of stuff. I think he's important, though. And the reason that I think that he's important is as sports journalism in particular becomes intertwined with teams. Like I work for a radio station. The radio station – has a contract with the Cubs and the Bulls. While I don't think that that biases my view or what I say about the Cubs and the Bulls, and our intercom family also carries the Bears, I would understand if someone felt that there was a bias in the way that we cover it because those teams are very lucrative and they make a big difference in the overall health of a sports radio station. If you have a sports radio station that doesn't have a big name sports property, play by play property attached to it, your station is probably in trouble. So you want to be grateful, but you also feel like you have journalistic ethics when it comes to dealing with those teams that are a part of your station. For the most part, I've, I haven't experienced in us, having the Cubs or even having the Bulls, which is probably the bigger upset, or before that, the White Sox, I haven't experienced like the hand of God coming down and be like, you went too far in your criticism. For me, it's pretty simple. If I don't make it personal, I, I don't think that anyone really has a leg to stand on. So I try to stay far away from making it personal when I'm talking about teams, players, coaches, executives, etc. I usually just judge it on, Job performance and observations, but try desperately to not make it personal. That that line is of whether or not one can be as honest as you want. It's is something that's creeping into sports all the way around. It's one of the things that I like about working over at NBC Sports Chicago, specifically Bears, because there's no relationship with the Bears. And I feel like my guys can just let it fly. And we don't have to worry about any sort of ramifications. But I give the Bulls credit. I mean, I was having a conversation with Michael Reinsdorf last week. He was here two weeks ago. He was here in the studio. And they've allowed Jason and Will and Kendall to be really honest about what's going on. And I've noticed the same thing when it comes to the Blackhawks, too. I say all that to say that... I think that the game needs guys like Joe. Joe is out on the edge, man. He's out there. He is out there on the edge. And you'll hear him refer to Cali Island. But I think that we need that. The, the, the spectrum has to have someone like Joe Cali on it so that the rest of us have room to maneuver. He's willing to take the risk and be the bad guy to try and tell a story. And I I've always appreciated that about him even when we disagree. I appreciate that he is out here trying to muckrake a little bit. And I'm I'm saying that if you can go look up what a muckraker is, but I'm saying that in the uh, nicest possible way that he is out here trying to speak truth to power in a lot of situations. And I'm sure in a lot of those situations, he feels like he is not backed up by his brethren in the media, and maybe he's misunderstood. He is. There are a lot of words I could use to describe Joe. He is cantankerous. He is abrasive. He knows it too, and he plays off of it. He play, He knows that. And there's also like this really, uh, contemplative, like sweet side of him, which I think if if you Allow yourself to listen in. You'll hear it. He has been a mentor to people that you would never expect. I would never expect that that he would mentor Tony Gill as, as well as he has. And I think it's great. I, I think it's great that he has helped shown him the ropes. Joe has a lot of enemies. He knows that. He speaks on it in this episode quite a bit. His enemies are not my enemies, and we, we've we talked about that both on and off the air. But I understand where he comes from on a lot of this stuff. I'm more of a consensus builder. I like to bring people together. Joe doesn't give a shit. When he feels like he's been wronged, he, he brings it up. I will tell you that for the most part, the people that I feel like he went after in this pod, I reached out to and let them know. Before it dropped, hey, Joe's going to have some things to say. I didn't want people to hear the pod and then go back to those people and be like, did you hear this? And then they catch them completely by surprise. So I appreciate that. I consider Joe Cowley a friend and a colleague, one who is flawed. And he speaks about his flaws. He talks about being inappropriate on Twitter getting in trouble because of him being inappropriate on Twitter. Um, but I'm I'm glad I know him. I'm really glad I know him because someone has to push, and he's not afraid to push. So without further ado, episode 82, Joe Cali. it begins with us talking about something that you may not know. And that's how we almost ended up doing a show together on The Score. We're I mean, almost
1: partners. Remember that? Yeah, it's true. We were. I lost it'd been, out to Hampton. It would have been good.
0: It would have been good. Man, you were on the list. I uh-huh. I was fighting hard. Uh-huh. I mean, we'd have, we'd have probably got fired because of you. Yeah, <laughs> we would have been fired quickly. But, but It would
1: have been fun. We would have gone out a blaze of glory, baby. I think it would have been really, really good. <clears throat> yeah. How,
0: how did you decide that you even wanted to do this
1: when the when the the show idea was pitched no 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 journalism period oh shoot um i had an english teacher tell me you know cuz i was playing sports in high school and really wasn't interested come uh, you know college writing courses and stuff like that and in, in in high school unless i was writing about sports and he was like did you suck if unless you're writing about sports you got you got to just you got to write about what you what's your passion and what moves you. So I was uh, about to go to Ohio State. I was accepted at Ohio State. I was going to go there for journalism, and then I actually started doing some research and found out that Kent State's uh, journalism program was better than Ohio State's. So I backed out the last second and didn't go in the fall and reapplied to Kent State and got in there and went, went there in the winter. Was
0: there ever any thought of you not being in the Ohio area?
1: Oh, no. I mean, every every person thinks that they're going to, you know, go to college, come out with a journalism degree, stay in your hometown, and, you know, and, and, and work that market. And it didn't work out that way. And then I realized that I didn't want – I like Cleveland. I like the passion the fans have. Um, but I didn't want to stay in a small market. I wanted to go to a big market. And so, you know, I – I did it the right way. You know, you st- I started off at a weekly. I did that for a couple of years, and I would go cover the games that no one else wanted to go cover. Um, went and saw Reuben Patterson play down at John Adams. And, uh, and there weren't many right, white reporters that wanted to go watch Reuben Patterson at John Adams. I can imagine. So, um, you know, I would, I would go to a lot of places that some of the guys didn't want to go and, you know, embrace that whole prep thing did things the right way you're supposed to start off at preps i know there's a lot of guys like coming out of college right now and saying that they're going to be um columnists right away and then um what, what, do
0: you, what do you think the value is of that of starting because i started on a prep desk too yeah, well what do you think is the value of
1: learning because it teaches you your craft you got to start off you got to answer phones and 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 take little league scores it teaches you so when I call my copy desk guys, I don't treat them like shit because I know that they're working their butts off and they have to do stuff that I don't want to do. And so you learn how to respect the people that are doing that stuff. Michael O'Brien, I mean, he loves the prep thing, but I respect the hell out of him for doing preps. Preps isn't easy. You you don't get you don't get a media meal and and. Yeah, you're sitting in a press box that may have Wi-Fi, may may not, may not have heat. Yeah, may not have heat, and you got to go talk to these kids that you know aren't the best interviews. Some of them are, but some of them aren't. That that's that's where you learn your craft, and that that's where everyone should start. But you know, everyone wants shortcuts now. So, um, you know, I started off doing preps at a weekly, and I realized if you're at a weekly too long, you die at a weekly. And so um the Lorraine Morning Journal, which is kind of a sister paper of the Lake County News Herald, they they kind of surround the Cleveland area. The Lake County one had the pro beat, the pro beats, and Lorraine Journal had the Ohio State beat. And they brought me on for preps. I left the weekly. A week later they're like, Yeah, we misbudgeted. We we can't even afford you for preps. So they laid me off. I went back to the weekly for another year, then the Ohio State job opened up at the Morning Journal. I'm like you know, we want we we're watching you, and you do a great job. We want you to have the Ohio State beat. So I did that for two and a half years, and um, broke some some interesting stories and and turned some some things. You know, the thing looking back, the thing that kind of sparked having a bigger mindset about this profession and actually taking it serious was my last year in college, um. It had nothing to do with Kent State. I just did a big takeout piece on why these why there's these playground legends, these guys that used to get picked before Isaiah Thomas, these guys that used to get picked in all these pickup games. There was a Reebok commercial with Lamar Money Mundane. I remember that. Yeah, I went and tracked him down. Uh Ralph I the Rocket Steel Walker. Guy yeah, named Lamar, Lamar Mundane. Money Mundane. Yep. I love Every that time. Commercial. Yeah. So I found him and I found this guy Ralph the Rocket Walker. Um And I interviewed all these guys, did a big piece, and it won a national award um, on just, you know, how these guys were just as good as the pro guys. But for some reason, you know, whether it was drugs or just bad decisions and stuff, they just strayed. And so um, it was about life decisions. And so that kind of sparked my passion that, you know, that that I can actually do this thing. So that, you know, I was kind of going through the motions, I think, at Kent State until that. When I realized the power of words and actually the power of what this craft can be, Um, it ain't brain surgery. I know there's a lot of people like walk around the city like they're brain surgeons in this profession They're not. We're really not that important, but you at least get to see um, how you can convey that passion that you have to other people. So that kind of started. And then I ended up Ohio State and covering Ohio State for a couple of years. And I just knew I wanted to get to a bigger market. So the Daily Southtown was hiring. I sent a resume in. Didn't hear anything for a couple months, and I found out there were like 500 resumes and it was for the Cubs job. Mm. So uh, Mike Deacon, my guy, uh, brought me in. I was one of five fi- finalists. I was the only out-of-town finalist. And um, got the gig, moved to Chicago, and then uh, two months later, uh, T.J. Quinn left the White Sox beat to go east, and they said, do you want to switch from the Cubs to the White Sox? And so that was... That was kind of the genesis of how I kind of came on the map. Did I ever tell you that I I started at the Southtown? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I,
0: I, that's where I worked the desk. Oh, yeah. I did preps for the Southtown. Yeah, like it was my my senior year of college. I had started. What year would that have been? Ninety six, ninety seven. All right,
1: I got hired there in ninety and in ninety seven, ninety eight. Yeah, and it was a blast. Like it was great learning that stuff and. Their mentality was like, um, yeah, we know we're only like circulation of, I don't even remember what they were, 40000 I was going to say
0: 50000 Yeah,
1: but uh, we're treating our pro beats like we're the Tribune in the Sun-Times. You had unlimited budget, and they're like, you go to every road game and you compete with those guys like you're just one of them. And I was like, hell yeah. And that was my mentality, and that's what I did. I competed with those guys like I was one of them. What's the value of
0: being a beat guy and being there Every day, because we're seeing newspapers in a lot of places that say they have people on the beat, and then they're not actually on the beat. The Athletic. I'm not here to, to name names. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I know. I, mean, I know that you're going to, and that's why I love having you on. The well, athletic. I
1: mean, you know, they want a subscription, and they don't. They're not even going to, you know. And Darnell's doing a great job. He's going to a lot of the Bulls games, but I think a lot of the beats. I'm not talking about Chicago. A lot of beats around the country, The Athletic, they're not going to, and they want your money. No, it's huge. Look, here, here's all you need to know about how a beat writer, in some people's eyes, is treated and should be treated. Ozzie Gian the first day of when pitchers and catchers and all the position players would report, so when we had the full team there, he would bring us out, and he'd be like, come on, come on, you guys are coming to the meeting. Out on the field. His first thing, he's like, all right, uh, here's here's some of my rules. First of all, this is Mark Gonzalez from the Chicago Tribune, Joe Colley from the Chicago Sun-Times, Scott Greger from the Daily Herald, Doug Padilla from ESPN. These are your four beat writers. They are treated like you treat me. If you disrespect them, you disrespect me. If you piss on them, you piss on me. That's how this will be treated. And... Those guys knew right away that we were significant to what was going on, as far as being that checks and balances and being that that voice to the fan, and at hopefully asking the questions that the fan would like to ask. And, and I mean, at the end of the day, that that's that's what we are. Um, and that's one of the big problems I have with Chicago. I mean, we could get into that later, but I mean, um, and so he understood that that. That's the importance of, of importance of a beat writer. And initially, when he first had that, I was like, "This guy's full of shit. He's not going to back that up." They got Scott Podsednik one time. Scott Podsednik used to like to hide when he didn't have a good game. Ozzie would come out because he knew he understood deadlines. He understood. He's like, "Who are you guys waiting for? We're waiting for Podsednik." Hold on. Goes in the shower, starts yelling, "Podsednik, you suck tonight. Get out and talk to the media right now. No hiding. Get out there right now. Talk to the media." Came right out and talked to us. I mean, that's now that's that doesn't happen very often, but the importance of being there every day, the importance of you know, these guys know that we're not on charter flights, we're taking you know, especially when you're covering the NBA, it's a whole different mentality. You got to be on that first flight out because you got to get to that next city to make shoot around or practice. So, and you're not getting out the night before after the game because flights aren't going out that late. So it's a, it's a grind. It's a whole different way of traveling. It's a small suitcase compared to the big ba- baseball suitcase. Um, but you would like every team to treat you like that, but that's unrealistic. But that was the greatest experience I had was dealing with a guy who understood and respected what we did. Do you think that
0: organizations and, and players, in particular, now have a good sense for? the relationship that they could have with the media versus the relationship they do have with the
1: media. No, it's gone backwards. If anything, organizations now are more and more trying to control the message and journalists are becoming more and more cowardly. And the beat writer is becoming more and more a voice for the organization instead of a voice for the fan. Um, You know, I catch a lot of crap that I'm negative or that, and I remember Jerry and I, Reinsdorf, and I got into it a long time ago when I was on the White Sox. And I flat out told him, you know, Jerry, if you don't want me writing tough stories, don't charge people. How's that? Don't charge for ticket prices. I mean, you look at the NBA right now for a family of four to go to a game, say they don't get the tickets comped, and say they're not having great tickets. Four or 500 bucks by the time you park, get sure. your tickets, food, a souvenir or two, and then you leave and that's the only game you can go to that year and you have a guy out there that's going to half ass it and not care come on man i mean a fan deserves to know hey this guy has a mindset that he's going to go out and try killing it every night you should go see that guy hey this guy i don't know he might show up on some nights he might show up show up on the night you're there he might not i don't know i don't you know that's what i have to do that's where where i feel the 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 Beat writer has to be positioned. That's the foxhole he has to sit in. Unfortunately, what's happened now, you have these organizations that are very smart. They all have their own websites. They all have their own social media people. They all have former big time beat writers now working for the organization where they can say, "Hey, uh, I just want to tell. I just want to let you know. Hey, a uh, little scoop for you. We're gonna sign. We'll, we'll give you this crumb right here. We're gonna sign this guy to a ten day contract." Oh, yeah, that's cool. I got the organization helping me out, hooking me up. So what do you do? Now you start becoming the guy that is getting all this inside stuff. But it's all shit. It's all who cares? It's not important stuff. It's not talent. It's okay. It's newsworthy. It's a note. But you have the organization now controlling you because they're pretending they're giving you these little crumbs, and they're kind of diverting you from what the big picture is. And that's happening more and more And I'm not saying it's generational. I just think as organizations have understood how they could control the media more, now you even see, you know, a lot, you know, up in Minnesota, Glenn Taylor owns the Star Trib. So how hard can they go in on him? I mean, how how bad can they go in on him? He had a coach who ended his 13 year playoff drought, an elite player, and chose two young guys. One's an enigma, and one we know what Joel Embiid did to him and called him. And they let told Jimmy Butler we're not giving you the money, and eventually, you know, we we all know what happened up there. Could the trib Star Trib go hard on that? No. So you have to lie, and you have to make Tibbs look like the bad guy. You have to make Jimmy Butler look like the bad guy. Um, so more and more journalism is being bought out and being prostituted by the organizations. Um, over these little morsels of news that they pretend is important, and then the, the journalists like, yeah, that this front office likes me and stuff. Nope, they just puppeted you. You just became a puppet. So um, and fans I, you know, and then sometimes I'm like, you know why do I even why do I get in these big battles with these organizations and then they say I'm lying, then they have to admit I'm right a year later and they've used other writers to try go against me and for what? Because sometimes I think the fans don't even care to hear the truth. They just want to hear the good news. Just paint me the good news, and I'll be happy with that. And if that's if that's what you want to spend your money on, hope, then that organization has won. And, you know, I use Minnesota a lot because I live there and, and have a place there as well as a place here in Chicago. And that's the perfect place to own a team because they have all four sports, they host Super Bowls, they host Final Fours, and they pretend they're Mayberry and they're the smallest little engine that could, and they sell their fans on it. Twins fans, they got a new stadium. They did no spending. They gave them Joe Maurer, their hometown guy, put him on a pedestal and said, look, we paid him. Come see us at this new stadium. And the fans just, they might, they might as well have a ski mask on taking the fans' money. And and I'm afraid it's happening more and more in Chicago. These All these rebuilds that they're selling and people are excited. This is Chicago. You're excited about a rebuild? Shame on you. Shame on you for being excited about a rebuild. Because a rebuild is selling hope and not success. It's dangling that carrot. And 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 I think there's owners here that think that carrot and that hope is a more powerful sale than actual success. That's the fear I have is, is slowly happening in this city. Third largest city, second largest sports market. And to me, it's one of the softest big city sports markets around. It's, it's shameful what's happened here. How do you navigate
0: dealing with, in organization because look, you've broken a lot of stories. Yeah. You clearly have sources in a lot of different places. So with them knowing you're Joe Cowley, you're that Joe Cowley, right? How do you go about getting sources inside organizations, considering that you are sometimes at odds with organizations?
1: Right. Well, so, I mean, you have to navigate. Here's how I look at it. When, when you go into a, um, a team, when you go into a franchise, and this, is, this isn't this is for every franchise, but I'd say probably this is the dynamic of most franchises. The number one scapegoat is always going to be the coach. Always going to be the coach. They know that. That's the profession. They get hired to be fired. They're the scapegoat. The players are probably number two on that list. But because of money and stuff like that, and especially in the NBA where the players are running the league, It's a little harder, but you can still use a player as a scapegoat. And then finally, the front office is going to cover their asses last. So if you go in with that mentality, you will find the cracks and you will find the leaks because people know the pecking order and they know that if they want to get a story out that may involve dirtying some hands, that's probably where you're going to leak some stuff to me. If you want to get a story out that is just hey, we're thinking of this trade or this trade um that well when I was on the Bulls beat I'm or, or when I'm on the Bulls beat I mean Casey Johnson is he's he's the best. He's first of all, he's the most professional person. Probably my favorite person I've ever worked with competed against. Sweetheart of a guy. Yeah, but um just dots the i's crosses the t's does everything right. You know, I'm like a caveman and he's like, you know, uh, 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 rowing a boat at some, some river by Harvard. You know what I mean? that's And, and so I, I like that dynamic. But on the White Sox beat, I think everyone knew. You know, Gon- Mark Gonzalez, when he was doing the White Sox, he was going to get the nuts and bolts stuff as far as uh, they're think of calling up this guy in the minor leagues or this guy did that. Because to me, that, that that's it's newsworthy. That's what a beat writer is supposed to do. But... Is it, to me, was that the big picture of why this team is failing or not? What's really going on inside? And that's that's when you start finding how much... People don't... people. The whole Ozzie-Kenny civil war that went on, people have no idea that stuff that couldn't get reported. Just because it was so... Um, It would become such a he-said-he-said he said libel issue that you had to really, really navigate... Can I go out on this limb? And if I go out on this limb, will this be traced directly back to this guy? Now, Everyone thought Ozzy was leaking me stuff. Ozzy never leaked me stuff. Never. Everyone thought that Jimmy Butler was leaking me stuff. Jimmy gave me a couple things. But there were so many other people telling me stuff about what was going on with the whole Pau Gasol, Jimmy versus Joaquin and Derek that went on. Um. So... You know the the idea that the the obvious one is the the one leaking it is isn't true, but there are a lot of instances where if you do write something, the organization will know exactly who leaked it, and then that guy's getting fired. So you have to think: Is it worth getting this guy fired when he's still giving me other stuff that's newsworthy that can't be traced back to him? So do I really want to burn him? Do I want to burn him over a story that? That has run for a day and a half or two days, and so that's the tough part when you're when you're dealing with that side of the organization, the ugly of an organization. Um, so you know, I mean, that, that's what you kind of have to navigate, and it's not easy because the White Sox were smart. They understood that I was the only reporting this stuff, so let's paint him as a liar, and so they marched, and, and they even took it a step further. Well, let's get the rival paper to report it the other way so they marched david hall out there he sat down with kenny got the big kenny exclusive that no there's nothing going on with ozzy and i and then you know a whole year later Jerry Reinsdorf has to release a statement that yes kenny and ozzy have been at odds and blah 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 blah. the thing i'd been reporting for the previous entire year before but was called a liar so um you know you just you know, Kauai Island sucks sometimes, and there's not a lot of visitors. But, you know, and, and I think when Ozzie eventually did get fired, I think he still has some bitterness towards a couple of the writers that were on the beat at the time because they knew what was going on and didn't report it. And, you know, shame on them. That's what they have to live with. Did it bother you that you have
0: been portrayed? Because here's the thing about one of the things I love about you is that you're not afraid to be the bad guy. You're not. But I do wonder: Did it bother you that you were portrayed as a liar?
1: Yeah, and yeah, I mean, Jerry Reinsdorf released two statements, painting, trying to paint a picture as I'm a liar. I mean, the whole Derrick Rose story: he tried saying their camp, everything was fine, and it wasn't. Everyone knew it wasn't. Okay, and that was that. That whole situation was ridiculous because that was a positive story that they turned into a negative it was Derek trying to take control of his brand wanting to be like LeBron wanting to uh, get everyone in his camp to shut up except his be the final voice and then three hours then he lies I had the whole thing on tape even even when him' saying it then three hours later because it blows up in his face, he acts like a puppet. Jerry puts his hand up his ass, puts him on ESPN, props him up, and then he basically shits on the entire story. So that's why I had a big problem with Derrick Rose. That started my whole questioning of what is this guy really about? And then you start digging more and more on him. So it wasn't about everyone thinks, oh, because he didn't play. If, if he didn't feel like he could play, don't play. That that wasn't it. It was more going on. You know, you, you – are saying one thing and trying to portray yourself as something? You're a team guy. Well, go out and recruit if you're a team guy. Oh, well, I'm old school. No, no, you're you're dumb because everyone else in the in the NBA is recruiting and going to leave your ass behind. You're never going to win anything. So you're not a good teammate. If you cared about the organization, cared about your team, you would go out and try getting more help. And Dwayne Wade even said it. If Derek would have come out and talked and tried persuading them besides just shooting a video that he was propped up to do when LeBron and Wade and all those were trying to it would have done wonders. Now obviously Bosch that they needed that Bosch piece and yeah the whole with would they would they trade Dang, would they wouldn't trade Dang. But the fact that Dwayne even said when you feel like your best player on the team doesn't want to come out and say something, then you feel like, well that guy really doesn't want me. So really why do I want to go there? And so um Those were the problems I had with Derrick Rose. It it had nothing to do with him sitting out, not wanting to play that year. Um, So yeah, and Jerry tried to portray me as a liar. He tried to portray me as a liar with the whole Ozzie Kenny thing. Um, You just you ride it out. It's yeah. I mean, sometimes it sucks. It sucks when the other writers know it's going on, and won't come to your aid and 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 back the story. And then it sucks even more when other writers who aren't around get pulled in and they become part of the puppet show and contradict your story even though they're not a beat writer they're just a columnist. You don't know what's going on here bruh. You're just trying to you're just trying to write a column to contradict the rival paper and you've been used and you've been prostituted out and, and, and whored out and enjoy yourself. So th- that kind of stuff um, sucks and then you have the whole idea of how the media has kind of turned. You know we used to compete but it was a brotherhood then it all of a sudden became let's just attack what the other guy writes and, and what he's about. And, and, you know, it became that. And so I didn't mind the competition wars with the Tribune, but when it became when when they're flat out lying about the story so that it's my word against theirs, that's what I had a problem with. You love sports. <clears throat> yes, not as much as I used to. Why not? Um. Everyone else says, "Why? why why didn't you, you know, I did the bears for like two months. It was awful. Why didn't you like the bears? Uh, it was going to a cubicle, sitting there like a nine to five bankers job for an organization that I thought was disingenuous with the media lied to the media would march you out on the field and, and, and say, here's your 10 minutes to look over players. Uh, too much bro hugs between the, some of the media members and the players, um, didn't really enjoy my coworkers, that I, not one coworker in particular. It wasn't Mark Potash. I love Potash. Um, didn't think he had my back. Um, so there are numerous reasons. So when Chris DeLuca said, hey, we can't find somebody to fill the Bulls before he even finished the sentence, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And the other, the other thing, the main thing was there's one team. There's one, you know, I'm a fan at the end of the day of one team, and everybody knows that team. It's the Pittsburgh Steelers. So covering the NFL, I didn't feel great about and i i actually had to go do a steelers game when the bears and the packers were in the nfc championship game the steelers and jets were in the afc championship game they sent me out to pittsburgh in case the bears won and the steelers won i could be there to kind of preview it and write a column that's when i was doing the column i it was the hardest thing i've ever had to do is sit there and cover steelers game as a media member And so that's why I have a big problem with Chicago having so many Chicago people covering their teams. I just don't think you can objectively say, if I write this story, it will hurt the organization that I grew up having this passion for. So I would say I'm a huge Steelers fan still. Love watching the Steelers, just like any fan loves watching the Bears on Sunday or anything. And that's why I don't want to cover the NFL. I want that to stay untouched and pure Because everything else, the other sports I've covered, it's all kind of a tainted kind of stank to it, and so you do it, but like you know, there's more behind each organization in each game, and it just kind of takes away from the purity of it. Hmm. Not to sound too campy, but no,
0: that's okay. It's totally all right. It's I mean, I go through. I talk about this on the podcast a lot that. People will ask me, you know, obviously I grew up a, a Bears fan. I,
1: I'm i not anymore. No, because it kind of just – you because you see how the sausage is made. And it's gross. And you're like, all right, I want this team to do good. I want this team to, you know, win. Because I do – I have grown to love this city. I think people think I don't like Chicago. I actually really do love Chicago. I just feel bad that I, I see a large city – just being brainwashed into being small city mentality over time and now these organizations have you right where they want you I mean how many rebuilds are going on at one time there's a lot right now That's re- that is a sin that the city of Chicago has so many rebuilds and fans are like you know all these White Sox fans excited about seeing these prospects that are double A AA and triple A if you're a prospect you're a suspect Nobody knows what you're going to be. You know, all, everyone was excited about this bull season. I think on, on the podcast I did for our, 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 my, my guy Ben Jarowski for the Sun-Times, I think I picked 34 games. He's like, no, they're going to win more than that. I'm like, how? how? Show me how. You know, they sold people on this idea that, well, we've look at how we jump-started this rebuild. and You traded a superstar top 10, top 15 player, two-way player, and the three guys you traded him for, combined can't do what that one guy did. I just wrote that the other day. You got Dunn who can play defense. I saw that. You got Zach who can score, you got Lowry who I don't know what he can do right now. You got and none of them can close the game and none of them have that DNA and that grit that Jimmy had.
0: They're not even letting Lowry.
1: No, he finally he got out of the doghouse the other day in Indiana, but I mean, you know, I I you know, I, I don't I don't understand how Zach and Lowry can't play together and can't find success together. Not just under Jim Boylan. They weren't doing it under Fred either. And obviously there were some more injuries that they really didn't get a lot of playing time, but something just looks off.
0: Is, is there anything still though, about covering sports that you really enjoy, even if it's not necessarily the, what happens inside of cover? Like, is there, do you still enjoy going to the United center or, Going to a final four or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I did the column there was a there's because you can pick and choose what you're gonna write about so you have enjoyment and a lot more things. Um the beat gets a bit grindy. And not that I'm trust me, I know what I know I could be digging ditches, I know I could be doing other stuff that is absolutely miserable compared to what I'm doing now. So I'm not gonna sit here and complain, yeah, hey, I'm a beat writer and I have to travel, way, when, That's not what I'm about, but I still like the idea of reporting. I still like talking to guys. You know, I do the interrogation rooms. I like things like that where you just, you know, throw things out there, crazy things, and, um, um, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the big Jim Boylan piece I did where you actually get to sit down and do a long, extended interview. I mean, it was like a 40-some minute interview um, just about – and I didn't want to even talk basketball. I just wanted to talk about him and his life and just so people get an idea about what this guy's about. Um, and like him or hate him or whether he's going to fail or or pass at this thing, that wasn't what it was about. It was just about this is what this guy's about. He's yeah he's a tough dude. And if anything, you'd think a city like Chicago should embrace a guy like that. He's kind of like a tough, no nonsense type guy. Um, and so will it result in wins or losses? I have no idea. But to me, that's people are are piling on the foreman and the architect of all this thing is just being completely ignored. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) They're piling on the foreman, not Gara, as the foreman as actually the coach rather than the people that did the blueprints of this thing. So, um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, no, there's lots of things I I enjoy. I mean, there's – the one thing I miss about covering baseball is you had so much access. You don't have as much now, but you used to have so much access to these guys where you actually had a relationship and – um, you remember like just all the funny times. I mean, I I could. It was a joy for me to go to the ballpark every day and interview Ozzy and then go talk to your rebate. I didn't have to interview him. I just want and just. I mean, you know, guys like that are are just gems, and um, you know, you're kind of glad just to hear them just talk, and you know, yeah. So you, yeah, there's things you embrace and you really like. Who's
0: someone that you sat down with? that you had a preconceived notion of what this person was like or what they wanted to present. Right. And then you sat down with them and you were surprised, like pleasantly surprised at what the final product or the, what that conversation turned into?
1: Yeah. Um, hmm. That's a good question. Where I was kind of like blown away by a guy because he was a lot deeper than, than I thought. Who was, uh, I'm trying to think. I'm, see, so the first time we met Brian Anderson, old White Sox outfielder, he was a yes or no sir guy. And then when I actually sat down and did a long interview with him, I'm like, this dude's a wild man, out of control. Um, if he doesn't make it in baseball, he's going to be in porn type guy. Um, because we had been introduced to him in one way and he wasn't like that at all. I mean, so am I'm I'm trying to think of a guy. I mean, you you usually when you do a big sit down, you usually kinda have an idea what a guy's about anyway, because you gotta do your homework on him and kinda of what you wanna You know, I I'll tell you a guy that surprised me. Because the reputation was there's two. The reputation was dicky and prickly, and Jermaine Die. And A.J. Przinski, I'd say, were the two biggest, um, did not see that coming of how much I actually enjoyed having a writer-player relationship with them. And A.J. even did the the Joe Meet Pro video where he tried to throw me out and stuff. And A.J. was, you know, just from watching from afar as a twin, I was like, I hate this guy. When the White Sox got him, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be a disaster relationship with this guy. And I couldn't have been more wrong. He was outstanding. So – um, Jermaine died, too. I thought he kind of came in a little pompous and a little, you know, and he was not like that at all. And so um, those are probably the two biggest that surprised me. Uh, uh, you know another one? Uh, Mike Dunleavy. You really? Think, you think Duke. You think probably had a silver spoon in his mouth. Coach's kid. Coach's kid. Um, The most just – not dookie person you've like carlos boozer is the poster boy for dookie okay dunleavy not dunleavy's the bro hug dude that you want to like hang with and go golfing with because he's just a bro and um so that he was a he was a bit of a surprise too you love playing basketball yes you're good at it too Nah, uh, it's just fading, man. Knees are going, everything. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. Because the body's not supposed to be playing right, right, right. Basketball in at basketball. our age. Yeah. Why do you love the game so much? You love teaching the game too.
1: Yeah, I love coaching. I've I've coached. Um, I mean, if you know, if, God forbid, sometimes something happens, and you know, I would go and coach and be just as, and I don't even have to, not even at a high level. Junior high, middle school, just love it. Love. Just love, I have a complete passion for it. Um, basketball, football, mostly football. Um, both my sons are football players. Well, oh, this is in college now, but was a football player. And then I've got the fifth grader now that plays. And um, love it. And, like, when I remember uh, Jason Goff, myself, and Matt Bowen, all co-hosted a show, and Bowen and I were just talking. And I could just, like – like, even when I did the Bears beat, I, I, like, was more interested in just, like, watching film and doing, like, f- the film thing that we did in the Sun-Times and just breaking down film than, you know, I, I just dig that stuff. I could watch film. I mean, when you're watching fifth-grade film, you know you probably have some kind of issues. you got a so, problem. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I love that 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 aspect of – and I love competing. I love the competition of pickup basketball, and, um, you know, I play in, here in Chicago, and then when I – in the off season I play – Every, almost every morning, in, uh up in Minneapolis with uh, remember Kevin Lynch. I played with Kevin Lynch. Uh, he's one of the guys. who run an afternoon game, two on two, full court, no out of bounce Oh yeah, we go for about an hour, hour and a half. That's, that'll get your
0: cardio in yeah, for the day, for yeah. the week.
1: Yeah, so um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I love it. I just love the competition and played on a uh, intramural team with uh, golf. That was that was a trip. That was a fun team to play with, met I, all his boys and stuff. I was talking with Golf yesterday,
0: and I told him that you were going to come and sit down. And he was like, you should ask him about the last time that, that, that we played. And On that Emerald team? Yeah.
1: I think I got kicked out of the game. Didn't yes, I? you did. Yeah, I think I threw a punch. <laughs> 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 we made it to the championship game, and then this team brought in players we didn't ever see because we had played them earlier in the year, and they, they un, 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 undid the ringers. And... It looked like you know it, it was they they were good and so uh, yeah I threw a punch in that game and got thrown out. He led the team in technicals throughout the year though, so he's got very little room to talk. I've played ball with Jay. I, yeah. I, I understand how yeah. he he does he Boylan would like him. He embraces physicality. Yes, he does. Yes, he's a very physical player. He is. Who was your favorite player in hoops growing up? Um, well, see, here, here's the thing. This is so I grew up in a wrestling family, I was a wrestler. So it was football and wrestling. So you were taught as a wrestler, everything basketball is hate, especially at, at a, at a wrestling school. My high school was a pretty big wrestling high school. Um, so I was a wrestler. I didn't start really embracing basketball till probably the Hoya paranoia. I was like, what is everyone getting all excited about? And I start watching it and I was like, Oh, this is, and then um, that was probably the first one, but the player that I'm, enjoyed the most and just I thought was I just must watch TV. Look, I mean I loved Jordan even growing in Cleveland and having him destroy the Cavs dreams and that was a good Cavs team every every year. But the guy that I was on my radar was musty TV was Allen Iverson. I just thought he just the toughness and the and you know and I love the football background he had And just the fearlessness, and he played. And to me, he was my favorite, and I just loved his attitude. It was just a middle finger to anything that defied him. And yeah, probably because he was—I got that small guy complex. Probably because he was a smaller player. But Allen Iverson probably was the the guy that he and and Gary Payton's pretty close too. I was a big Gary Payton guy. Do you mind if we talk about cancer? No, let's go. It's -hmm. not fun.
0: When you first got diagnosed, so it was two times, right? That, that yeah, the second it? one was
1: melanoma. That was nothing.
0: So when you first got diagnosed, was it blood cancer?
1: No, it was. Um, although the Gian boys still think it's testicular cancer because they are uh, the Gian boys. That's how they think local. I have one testicle. Really? Yeah, I had to remind them this week I have two testicles. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh, I traveled to Tampa. Felt sick. I told Pat O'Connell, the former White Sox PR guy, I I can't even cover this game. I went back to the room, threw up. I had flown that day. I figured I'd plane. You know, just beat me up. It's near the end of the season. month later, like one of the last trips of the season going into Detroit, same thing. My stomach just... And I went home, threw up, back at the hotel, was fine the next day. I went home. The season ended. My wife and I were... We had just gotten married. We were in Minnesota visiting. You know, I didn't have residency up there. That's why I bought a place up there because that's where eventually where my oncologists and all that were. Everyone's like, well, why do you got a place up there? I'm like, well, that's where I thought I was going to die, so that's, I bought a place up there. Um, Mayo? No, I didn't, I, I didn't. The Mayo to me was you're just kind of another number and we're way smarter than everybody else, and I didn't like that attitude. I wanted someone who actually cared about me. And- you wanted
0: you wanted someone to
1: approach your treatment the way that you approach everything. A- absolutely, absolutely. And so, um, my we were eating dinner at my my in laws. I, I was like I don't feel good. And they had like a, a their basement is like redone into like another living quarter. So I went down there. I was laying on the couch, and then I went in the bathroom and vomited again. And my wife was upstairs, and she's like, "Oh my god, that's the most violent vomiting I've ever heard." She goes. I'm going to make an appointment with my dad's doctor. Okay. We went to the doctor, Doctor Titi, who's still my doctor today. And he's like, "Yeah," because I thought it was a food allergy because I do have these weird food allergies, and, and so I thought it was. You're thinking
0: it's a combination of a lot of things. Yeah, it's the end of the season. You've end been of the on season, the flight. I'm worn
1: down, and yeah, you know, and you know I do have food allergies, and your allergies change as you get older. And I thought you know something happened there, so I'm like, we went in on a Monday. He's like, I want to have you scanned Wednesday. Had me scanned on Wednesday. Called me Wednesday night and said, "Um, we're going to have you in surgery on Friday. I was like, what? Yeah, we found some stuff. Um, We're not sure what it is. We think we have an idea what it is. I've already talked to the surgeon, Dr. Belzer. We're going to have you in surgery on Friday. I'm like, you know, this was just supposed to be a food allergy. Um, then they talked to my wife and said, where are his parents? And they said, she said, they're in Cleveland. She said, he said, have them fly up. So now everyone's kind of in, oh shit mode. What, why, you know? So I remember he said, we think it could be cancer. Um, we're going to go in and, he basically said, Dr. Bell said, if you wake up and it's a big cut, it's, it was cancer. We had to remove stuff. If it's just a small cut, then it was exploratory. And So the first thing I remember, I was coming up and I was pulling the tubes out of my nose because no one was hearing me. And I was yelling, is it a big cut? Is it a big cut? And then um, my wife came in and said, uh, you got cancer. So then you're like, you, you have that one bad day. And she was like, uh, I always compared it to Adrian yelling at Rocky. She's like, I'm giving you this one bad day, and that's it, one bad day. And so we're like, okay. They're like, okay, well, we have to stage it. And they said it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, follicular lymphoma, because it was small cell and large cell. And then they stage it, and they said, we're going to check your bone marrow. And he said the chance of it being in your bone marrow is like 10%. And sure enough, it was in my bone marrow. So that put me at stage four. Now that's one of the few cancers that if you're at stage four, there's still a cure rate, but there's also, there's never a five-year window because it's large cell and small cell. Um, You can be, it can be dormant for five, 10, 15, 20 years, and then it could come back. So um, I was staged at stage four and was in the hospital still. My dad, I remember the. My dad was in there with me that day. They ended up staying, obviously, like the whole 10 days I was in the hospital after. And uh, doctor came in, younger guy, and he's like, uh, my name's Dr. Leach. I'm one of the oncologists. And, you know, I want to talk to you about what, you know, because I wanted to see a couple different oncologists and see who I liked and who. And he was just very, just kind of like cocky, but not belligerent, not like I'm smarter than you, but basically like we're here to beat this thing. I'm not going to give you four years. I'm going to try beating this thing. My dad instantly didn't like him. I don't like him. You need an older guy. I'm like, I like him. And so he became my oncologist, and we actually became pretty close. A be- patient and, and doctor aren't supposed to be as close as we were. We became like kind of friends. And... Um. Finally, after eleven years, he called me in. He's like, "Look, I love you, but I don't ever want to see you again." Because mm. it would have come back by now. And then that was in two thousand five. And then two. And you know, I had the I had the port put in because I did um chemo, R chop, and then at the time there was a drug called rituxan, which they were using for uh, arthritis, but they were finding out that it had a really good. Um, effect on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so they wanted to do that maintenance for like two years after. So that's why I left the port in and I would get that for, I got that just as a maintenance for two years. Um, so, and then in 2008, I, they had found a melanoma on my leg that was unrelated, but that was low grade, easy, just wear sunscreen and I go to my dermatologist once a year. So that was, uh, but I mean, that that's, that was, you know, my wife saved my life. The doctor, doctor, my sister works at the Cleveland Clinic. She had talked to doctors at the time. They're like, the chance that a, a doctor, because of two throwing up episodes, no weight loss, no night sweats, no loss of appetite, would say, I want to do a scan you know. this quickly and get you in. The chances of that happening are so small, but yet they found out that my intestine was so corroded with the cancer, that's the food was getting blocked and shooting back up. And if I didn't have I had surgery on November fifth, two thousand four, I would have been dead by the end of November if I wouldn't have had the surgery. That's how dire it was. Holy the shit. intestine would have exploded. So they took a foot about a foot and a half of the intestine out. There was still cancer on different parts of the intestine, but there was that was all like quarter size stuff and they weren't gonna start trying to get that's why they just blasted it with the chemo. So um and that I mean that changes, you know, the person I was Then the mentality where, you know, you didn't think I gave a shit before that, I give a shit even less about your opinion or if I've angered you or if uh, you think I should be upset that um, I ripped your pitcher. I don't care. So um, there's way bigger things going on than your little pitcher, your little over-budget team, you know. So, I mean, that just kind of enhanced the whole – um of what what kind of writer I wanted to be. I wanted to make sure organizations weren't taking advantage of the fan. Was the
0: scariest moment the initial diagnosis or were there scarier moments
1: after that? The initial diagnosis was the really bad day. But after that, you know, my dad's a my dad's a tough dude. Black belt grew up in a tough neighborhood um we had a lot of you know my dad got us involved in wrestling uh was very and not like mean but when he came home he would come up and start boxing you bare knuckle boxing you and saying you know let's go come on come on so there's just a toughness you you kind of you know, and you know, I am mostly Italian, and so you carry that kind of edge to you, where you know you are little, yeah, you are little, and you know you 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 just kind of have. Uh, my whole thing was, you know, I grew up and I grew up in the comic book world, so my whole thing was, shit, I am this is I am this is my mutant power. I get cancer and I beat it. It's kind of a useless power, but that's what I do. Kind like Deadpool. There you go, yeah. So, um, you know, I embraced all of that, and I was like, let's go, let's dance. And I had the one bad day, and then the day I found out it was in the bone marrow, I was kind of like just pissed. I was like, F this. Let's freaking go. When are we starting this stuff? And, you know, I had so many things. And I was afraid of needles before that, and you learn real quick. you know, Real quick. Day four in the hospital, the catheter. Also, I'm like getting pain in like my testicle area, and I'm like, oh, something's not right. And I look, and the catheter is just filled with yellow, and I'm like- <laughs> I go, and I buzz the nurse, and I'll say this. Even my dad said, he goes, this, I was at at Methodist Hospital in Minnesota. Even my father-in-law commented. He's like, this floor has the cutest nurses. I mean, they were just all just like the cutest nurses. And I got to sit there and say, look, something's not right. So she comes in and she's like, yeah, your catheter's clogged up. I'm like, all right, well, what do we got to do about that? She goes, I could try blowing some air up there to unblock it. But otherwise, I have to change it. I'm like, oh, you guys got to put me out? And put She goes, oh, no, we don't put you out. We're just going to do it. And my And my dad was in the room. I remember it was during the Eagles-Steelers game, Roethlisberger's rookie year. They upset the Eagles that day. I had to lay on the bed and have her pull the catheter out and put another one up there. That was, that was, that's when you know you're alive right there. So, um <laughs> um... But yeah, as far as like woes me and stuff like that, and look, I'm I don't tell anybody, like, you know, I've had people come up and I've talked to a lot of people since then that have had cancer that have asked me about it. And I don't tell anyone how they should handle grief. Like you got a lot of people on the outside that don't have cancer that are like, Well, if I get cancer, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a fighter. And I don't understand why this guy's not fighting or this guy uh, is this way and this. Way. You don't know until you're in that situation. You have no idea until a doctor tells you. You have cancer. And I remember it was so important to me to make opening day. But even more so, I mean, my wife instantly, we shaved my head. I was like, we're not going to go through this whole drama of the hair slowly falling out. So we shaved the head right away. And between the fourth and fifth chemo, my white blood cell count was. So they're like, we had to give you this injection and that like my wife would physically have to for two days, like pick me up because by that time I lost so much weight and like help me just go pee, you know? And you know, at the time, my wife, I'm 30, the time 33, my wife's 11 years younger than me. You're talking about 22 year old girl that is going through this her first year of marriage with some freaking old dude who's dying of cancer and she didn't flinch. So that's, um, that changes that relationship right away. You know what I mean? Facts. Yes. There, that's stuff that old people go through. Yeah, that's
0: stuff where you find out that someone's... Right. A lot of people say they're down for you.
1: Yeah. That's Even, finding out that you, that you that are. That she's down, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because she's got to see you just... you know in the Like, the worst. The worst. You look like... So, after that fourth... They gave me the shot. I felt a little better. I'm like, I want to go out to spring training just for, like, three days because I want everyone to see me now so that it's not a big deal come opening day. And I went there, and I came around the corner of the press box. I remember Padilla was sitting there. Merkin was sitting there. Uh, Gregor, Gonzalez. And they all turned, and you know in their eyes they're like, this freaking dude's dead. He, there's no way he's living. Because I was – I looked bad. I felt good that day but i looked awful and then i went and saw ozzy and ozzy start crying and i'm like you know and my whole mentality is everyone you know it, it's nice that these but you know in their mind I'm thinking that dude's dead and i'm glad i'm not him that's how you what you see in everyone's eyes is that freaking dude ain't gonna make it so um it was a uh, as crazy as it sounds it was probably a blessing because it put priorities in order for me. My whole thing at that time was chase chase the crown, chase the, the crown of journalism, be a columnist, push, push, push. My wife knew what she got into when she married me. She's, you know, th- that second string. After that, you're like, not once in that hospital did I say, God, I can't wait to uh, to make sure I can make it to work. It was, I want to see Aiden. My whole thing was, I I just need to live a year because... I my grandfather died when I was three, and I don't really remember him. And my son at the time was three, and I wanted to get him to four because I thought he'd remember me more. So that was my my your that's the first hurdle where I'm like, get me, let me fight and get this to a year, because I know it's stage four. I know what we're dealing with. Let me get this to a year, and then we'll kind of reassess. And so that that's kind of how you attack it is like, you know, let let's get that stuff in order. So the idea of um, this drive I had towards work and oh I gotta I gotta be the best I gotta be a columnist I gotta be pumping my chest and you know be the Sun Times columnist and blah 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 because I was still at the Southtown then, um, all that kind of goes away you get, that gets put in, in perspective and order right away.
0: Were you worried about how Aiden would see you? Because even in that that time, no, that- he
1: knew Daddy was sick. I mean, you know, kids kids know. And, and there was probably some trauma that, you know, he had to deal with when you see your dad just laying on the couch every day and in the dark all the time because light, you know, after chemo, you, you know, I used to just lay in the dark. I didn't want to bother people. I would be down in that, in that basement. I wasn't going to do it in Cleveland because my parents shut down. You know, Italian folks, that generation, if you had cancer, you were dead. They were picking out, you know, a plot. And they, sh- my sister and brother would call me all the time. And they're like, mom and dad's house is dark, not answering the phone. They're dead too. So, um, I mean, it affects a lot of people. So, um, yeah, my, that's why I didn't want to do the chemo in Cleveland. And I didn't want to do it in Chicago cause you know, I didn't have relatives here and we knew we'd need help. So, um, and I found the right people, the surgeon, Dr. T, every, everybody I'm still, you know, Dr. T I'm going to go see him in a couple of weeks for my yearly physical. He's my, uh, my doctor to this day. And my father-in-law's doctor, my father always goes, you know, you saved my son. Like he, he's just like, no, I didn't, I didn't do anything. That's just our job. Was, have you had the moment
0: where you don't feel like you have cancer? And I know that, that you've been cleared, but is, is, have you had the moment of it isn't it isn't top of mind or priority? Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You you actually have you actually have um, less moments where you remember having cancer after all these years. The first, you know, the first while it's a ghost. It's always in your head because mine doesn't have a finish line where five years and you're good. Um, but yeah, you just you know I always told my parents. You know, I'd go to these chemos. I go, yeah, you know, hey, if I don't make it, it sucks, obviously. But you guys, you guys have to see some of these little kids that are laying there. I've lived, you know, at the time, 30 some years. Okay. It's not ideal. But these seven and eight year old kids, they're laying in these hospital beds and their parents are just sitting next to them. And they've barely scratched the surface of life and they've barely scratched the surface of what they could be. That's who you feel bad for. you're not feeling bad for some 30some year old who's you know had a pretty good experience of life for a 30some year old. You're feeling bad for these six, seven eight year old kids that I mean shit who knows if they even went to Disneyland or something you know what I mean so um, that's who you should feel bad for but yeah, I'd say the first five or six years when you're still going through stuff you 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 see ghosts, you have those ghosts in your head. Uh, But then the ghosts go away and you still, you get to know your body really well. And so there's times where you, I'll get, well, this doesn't feel right or this and this, but that happens less and less where you're just like, you know, it's just a a part of being 51 years old now where you're just going to have aches and pains. So how do you think, and I know you talked a little bit about it, but
0: how do you think it changed? You said that you really did dig into the fuck it. Like I'm. I'm gonna do what I want to do. I'm not afraid well, say of say what anything. I want to say,
1: and it probably, and probably at times too much. Um, and I'm just gonna live my life, and I don't care who I know who I knew who my true friends were at that point. I know which people in this profession had my back at that point, and I knew the importance of my immediate family at that point. Everything else, I don't give a shit. Why, you know, why do I care if you don't like a story I wrote? I don't care. I'm trying to write a story so you understand the team that you're dishing out money for. You're going to get mad at me? Get the hell out of here. What's advice that you would give a young journo? Go to law school. It's not bad advice. No, no. I, I, I mean, that's the easy thing to say. I went and talked to Missy Isaacson's class at Northwestern last year, and she's like, please just don't come in and say, you guys are all idiots. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Because they're not. What I would say is, attack this profession the right way, okay? You've got a lot more landmines than when I first came in. When I first came in, and guys before me, and Sam Smith, I I love Sam Smith's stories. He tells me how he started off this, and you'd have these editors with cigars and blowing smoke in the newsroom, and he was in D.C., and... The hustle and bustle of politics, and he was covering politics. That's but start the right way. Don't try and shortcut it. And the other thing that that there's so many more landmines now where you have these bloggers and you have these guys that use analytics to try getting their way. They can't go in the locker room. They don't have the cojones to actually ask athletes that they bash the day before questions because they're scared of them. So what do they do? They use numbers or they use the meat that I kill, and they're eating that. I always tell KC, I hunt and kill so a lot of bastards out there with blogs can eat. I'm out there on the road, and now people just poach your quotes. They don't give a crap. They don't even attribute stuff anymore. And then they want to sit there, because they had all day. They don't have a 15, 20-minute deadline to put out 500, 600 words. And they had all night, and I won't even say in Dad's basement and Mom's basement, because that's a cliché. But to think about it, put their blog out the next morning and tell you what a piece of shit you are because you didn't write the story that 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 they would have written. It's like, what did you do? What did you bring to the table? You're eating because I went and hunt and killed. You, what did you do? You didn't do a damn thing. You sat and wrote your blog, and you got and these guys just crap on you. It's it's un- I mean, I think it's funny, but and I always if if. If one of them does like, get real personal with me, I always tell them, just get a credential and come out. I'd love to see what kind of questions you'd ask. Oh, that, they don't. It's easy to – and that's the thing where I talk about media on media crime and how that's just gotten – it's easy just to crap on what we do because, A, you're jealous that you're not doing it, and, B, you think you would do it better. But then when you see these guys come out here, when some of them do come out here, church miles they don't say anything they don't ask anything that's why like guys young guys in this profession that I really embrace quickly Cody from here the score right away not afraid to ask questions not afraid to ask tough questions why I instantly like Bernstein I was at a bears game way back the South town had me go do a bears game and, and Bernstein I don't know what he was he's like right next to Wanstead he's like did you hear him tell you you suck Hold the mic up. I'm like, this dude's got some balls. And Juan says like, no, no. And he goes, yeah, they were saying you suck. And I was like, holy <laughs> moly. I go, I dig this dude. And as much as I hated this person, there was a time where Jay Mariotti would actually go down and interview people before he became so scared because he was a coward. And and actually wrote columns that were interesting instead of just always all negative. I mean, look. I love Morsey. I love Tellender. When's the last time we had a must read columnist in the city? This is Chicago. Who's your must read columnist right now? I don't know It's funny because you're right the voice of the sports page and they're all whispers now, and I'm not slamming those guys maybe i, I you know, but you don't see him as much. So I think that has something to do with it.
0: Well, I mean, Rick is, is out here mixing it up now. Like, I, I do like that. I like that I like that there are people that are still mixing it up. Because over the last few weeks with the Everybody Bears, goes to the
1: Bears game. Who's, no, you're right. Who's going to Bulls games? Not too who's many. Who's the last columnist you saw the Bulls game?
0: Not too many, and I should probably go to more games. Well, you, you guys do something different. You're, yeah, but I... But I, I, here's
1: what I always liked about you and Jason Goff... Even Spiegel back in the day, I saw their asses at games. I see you guys at games engaged in what's going on. That tells me it's not like you're just showing up for show because it's taken out of your time, but you're actually showing up just to catch the vibe because I'm going to go in and I'm going to talk about this team or I'm going to talk about this guy. I should probably know what the hunting ground looked like before I go in and start taking my shots at it. It's easy just to sit in your house or or do whatever and come on here and I'm this and I'm that and I'm fake tough guy and stuff. Go ask questions after you say this stuff to these guys. That's what the beat writer has to do. I'm a big proponent of it and I mean
0: I know that it is I mean, I've had my clashes with Kenny as well. Um I mean there's Hollywood. There's a there's a, a fun spring training story where we're on the backfields just going at it. Mfing each other. I mean, just, and we're cool now. Like we, our vibe is fine. Like we get along fine. And I think part of it is, is that we recognize that some similarities in the other, um, that he wasn't going to back down from something. I wasn't going to back down from something we found. We found, I would say that kitty and I have found detente. Like that's how I would describe it. But I, I also feel like I can't throw stones and hide my hand that I can't
1: no, go, you go hard feel that way.
0: And and maybe that's the old beat reporter in me. I can't go hard on the air and then
1: not show up. That's why I mean, I'm trying to think of people that I really liked early on here that did that. Uh Bernie Lindsacum would go right back out there after he wrote a hard column. I feel like you have like if it if it's That's the day you have to show up. You have up.
0: to be there for that.
1: You know who is awesome about writing something tough and showing up the next day is uh, Missy Isaacson. Right away I noticed that about her. I was like. Unafraid. Unafraid. Um,
0: Wait, you didn't tell me. How, How did the students react to you in her
1: class? I don't know. You'd have to ask them. No, I was just real with them. I just told them, look, you know. I just believe in trying to do things the right way. Learn your craft. Right, I mean, when I was at that weekly, I was doing a draft guide that I made out of my house. I was doing anything to get noticed. I did an NBA draft guide, not your average Joe guide to the NBA draft, for like two, three seasons, and I got the Cavs pick right twice in a row. So, there's one guy made a big deal and start bringing me on the radio. Les Levine in Cleveland start bringing me on the radio, and then I started doing radio in Cleveland because of him. So, um. And then I would, like I said, I would volunteer to go do the games that people didn't want to go to. Nobody wanted to go to John Adams on a on a Saturday morning or a Friday right after school because they ain't playing those games at night. Damn. Nobody nobody wanted to go to Cleveland Heights Shaw when the riot broke out and gunshots outside. And we had to get on the team bus and leave our cars there and take the bus out of out of the Shaw High School area up to the hill up to Cleveland Heights. But there weren't many people going to those games, and so. Um, that's the kind of stuff right 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 and your style you got to find your own voice you got to find your own style you have to find your own and it takes a long time and it changes as you mature and as your life experiences change um whether it's becoming more snarky or what whatever it is but you have to you have to do your craft as much as possible. That's one thing I like about beat writing. You're writing almost every day during that season, even in the off season. You're writing almost every day. And there's times where it becomes monotonous. And how can you even come up with 1,200 words if you got to write two stories on this team? But you just figure it out. Some days they suck and you're just going, quote, transition, quote, because you're just not feeling it or there's nothing big going on. And other days you're just, you're excited about a story. What I miss is like, when Ozzy got traded, so I had that story at like four o'clock. I knew no one else had it. Poker faced it, and the days of breaking stories and it's sitting and no one knowing till it read it's the paper the next now. day is is over. Okay, I had a couple of those that, that you know you, you all night. You're like giddy. You miss, and I miss that. You're like giddy. You're like everybody's ass is getting chewed out by their editor marks so at mine, and so. The day Ozzy got traded, I had it at like 4 o'clock. And I go there and you're like, Oh no one else got it. I hope no one else got it. I'm like, nobody else has it. You just tell. Everyone's just writing general stuff. You tell. It's like a poker game at that point. I have the whole thing written. Send it to the desk. They're like, win, win, win. I'm like, 7.05. Kenny Williams locks his doors. Won't take any calls. during, Won't have a game interrupted. 7.05. Put it on the internet. It was – it was for an hour and a half, it was just pure joy. I'm just sitting there. No one cared what – my desk didn't care what the final score was. That was just a plug-in. Who cares? And Van Dyke and I think Gonza was working. I think they had – Van Dyke and Gonza were both there double-teaming it for the Trib. Um, Padilla was there for ESPN. Phones are just blowing up because at 7.05 – Kenny's not taking any more calls because the game started, and you know, Kenny's got to study the game. Morpheus has to really break down the shit. <laughs> and so nobody, and the game started, so you're not getting players, you're not getting Ozzy. It's in lockdown. ESPN's calling Padilla. They're like, can you confirm this? He's like, how? I got nothing. They're like, put Joe Kali on the air then. So I, I, they, they're like, he's like, dude, do you want to do this ESPN interview with Linda Cohn? I'm like I guess, and so um, you know, and I had the whole thing laid out. That was you know, tri- and then after an hour and a half, p- a people started you know getting a hold of agents, and, and 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 so they start, but they didn't have the it all. Put- and then finally, the White Sox, like in the seventh inning, released a statement. Meanwhile, the Trib was just sitting there, just freaking wearing it. And th- those you miss those days because it's so hard to do that now. So I appreciate you doing this, man. Dude, I, I loved it. Loved it. This was a lot of fun.
0: It's gonna ruffle some feathers. Whose feathers? I'm I'm gonna look. You know that I am a I am a consensus builder. I try really hard to bring people together, and I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna
1: have to smooth over some people. Look, here's the thing. Okay, here, here's the, for this city. Deserves better than to me than what it's been getting. And maybe I'm even part of the problem. I don't know. Okay. I, I think I've, 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 I'm sure I've lost some, some miles per hour on the fastball. You know, I, I told my wife the other day, I'm like, you know, I had heard something and I'm like, you know, I could probably start going down that alley. I probably eventually will. It might be a little too early in the season to go down there now. So I'm kind of fighting it. But if I go down there, it's right back on a boat to Kali Island. And I'm like, do I feel like doing it again? And so, you know, I thought about it, and I'm still kicking it around. And, I mean, it gets tiring. And, and the the thing that, that this city deserves better from the media, like I said, I have, I have a problem with there being too many fanboys in the Chicago media. I think every city should have out-of-town writers covering its team. I just do. Or guys that at least, and again, I've talked to Golf about this. That's one of the things for years, and I think I even mentioned this to you, until you, I had no idea what baseball team you liked, if you were Cubs or Sox, for years. And I did shows with you. And I was like, I'm not even going to ask because, you know, I kind of felt like maybe you were more Sox, but I had no idea on Golf. And finally, I asked him one time, like, dude, are you a Sox or Cubs guy? I have no freaking idea. And then, you know, and he told me, and so, but, and, and the thing, and like,
0: I, it's my, it's the biggest compliment I can get is that people be like, oh, you're a Cub fan. And I'm
1: like, mm, sure. Yeah. That's what you think. Sure. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, it, that, that bothers me about the city is that, like I said, I think there's too many Chicago people in this city commentating on Chicago sports and then and I get it on radio and that's why I remember I, Mitch and I had this discussion. I was like, "Mitch, a great show is a Chicago guy and the other guy being not a Chicago guy." And he was probably like, "Who the hell are you to tell me how to do freaking radio?" But I always thought those were the best shows when you have the hometown guy and then the guy that doesn't have that big piece of the pie that you that can actually look at it differently. Because you know, Look, I've always had allegiance to the score. There were numerous times ESPN wanted me to come do it, and I'd call Mitch and be and be like, dude, I'm sticking with you, and he'd be like, thank you. And now it's almost to the point where it's I, – I listened to your show today. But there aren't many shows I could listen to because it's the same old I'm just a Chicago fan on the radio. And that's not what I want anymore. I don't know if it's a, my taste has changed or I, I just – and, you know, that's why – I was so sad about Jason because um the you guys had just got the Bulls and I'm like okay this is the basketball guy and then he's gone and I was like how does that happen and so and I was glad you got moved to afternoon because I thought you were getting buried and you know there're certain guys that you can't tell that they have this allegiance where they are there for the fan and to service the fan and then there're certain guys that it's just I'm 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 just a fan, but I'm smarter than most of you and blah, blah, blah. I can't, I can't do it anymore. That's, you know, thank God for satellite radio and Howard Stern because I can't do some of that stuff anymore. So I'm not trying to ruffle feathers. I'm just trying to say Chicago deserves better from its teams, from its media. Maybe I'm part of the problem. No, here's, here's what I think about
0: you and what I've always thought about you. You're, um, I need you out there on that extreme. I need you fighting for, because we—I don't always agree, right—with you, and you shouldn't. But I feel it's necessary to have you as a provocateur, because it it allows the rest of us some room to. I—I to, I think that you talk about hunting and killing. I think that you're out here taking bullets. And, There's and
1: times I, where I feel like that. And yeah. I re,
0: and I respect that because I think that it allows the rest of us some movement to to push a little bit. And it's something that I think is really necessary in, in sports in particular because I agree. I do think that people have become and I'm not even talking about media members. I'm talking about fans that this the the stuff that the teams do is so slick and there is the idea of the pom poms and radio in particular, we benefit when teams are good, which is always absolutely why I always, we all do papers I, do too. Of course. Yeah. And, I, and I always bristle at the idea of, well, you just want us to fail. No, no. We want you to succeed.
1: I get but special sections then. Yes.
0: Absolutely. Everyone gets more exposure, more money, yep. all of that stuff. But when you fail and you fail miserably, it is my job to call you out. Yep. And I feel as if that is less appreciated now for a lot of reasons, you know, it, whether it's how people feel about the media overall and some of the stuff that on why
1: people feel that way about media we've earned. Yeah. We, we, there's we've times earned I hate the media. I hate the very profession I'm in. And, and sadly it's becoming more and more just because I just see, um, look, I now know my. I, it took me a while, you know. I, you, 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 there were opportunities to leave the Sun Times, but I know, I know, I have the greatest sports editor. Chris DeLuca is the greatest sports editor because Chris DeLuca was in the foxhole, was an out of town guy, had the same mentality. I did. gives us a leash, like he backs really, you quite a bit. Unbel- beyond probably where he almost got fired because of me, and the respect I have for him. I I mean, I, we're we're obviously friends, but the respect I have, I'm I'm still trying to please my sports editor, my friend Chris DeLuca, because of how much he's gone to bat for me. I mean, Jim Kirk wanted to fire me. The Twitter shit, he wanted to fire me. He didn't understand it. He didn't. The timing of it was awful. I deserved everything I got, but what I never got to do was tell the real story of it. Because he said, if you go on the score, and that's why I got pissed at Danny Mack and Spiegel that time, because I said before, I can't talk about it or I'll get fired. And they, like, ambushed me. Two guys that I did a lot of stuff for. And we've patched it up since then. I'm I'm over it. But I remember that day, I I can't remember if it was Shep or who it was, I, I got off the air and I was like, what the F was that? These guys that I considered friends did that? Because then my phone was blowing up immediately. I mean, that I almost got fired. That DeLuca's put his neck out there for me so much that you can't repay a guy like that. And he did it probably because we do have a friendship, but I think he also did it professionally because he believed in what I was doing. And how many guys do that now in corporate America? Put their neck out for a guy that thinks that because they feel he's doing the right thing. And not the Twitter stuff. I'm just talking about the, just the job in general. Um, and the fact that Jim Kirk never let me go on the air and explain it and let me get painted as misogynist, even though I, I put my wife and my mom on a, on a statue and, and even though that the, you know, dead spin was trying to get Missy Isaacson to go and say what a piece of shit I am. And she's like, no, I like Joe. I, you know, and so they were searching for people to, f- and, uh, Ricky O'Donnell was the one that stepped up and said, what a piece of shit I was. And so I got him fired, even though i never even spoke to him, um, but just the, the the backing that he's given me and the Sun Times has given me um, in general, I mean that's that's that paper. It's a blue collar paper. It's a hardworking paper. And I just have learned just to love it and embrace it and not worry about going anywhere else. I, you know what I mean and, and that's my paper. And when they turn the lights off at that place, I'm, I'm done. I'm good. I'm good. I got to do a column. I got to be in a major market. Kiss my ass. Goodbye. I'm good. Well, I
0: like Cali Island, and I come visit it occasionally. It's not a place that yeah. I go all the time, <laughs> but occasionally I parachute in, right. and I hang out. And, and, I've, I,
1: and I've always had that respect for you, for guys that I felt were truth searchers and not afraid to wade through the trash can and, and, and get dirty because, you know, there's times where, you know, wasn't didn't Kenny threaten a lawsuit on the air? To, against me or Coop, one of them did. It's probably Coop. still waiting for that lawsuit, big boy. <laughs> Lawyer up, big boy. Because I told the truth of what a Judas you were, and how. He, why does he still have a job? Oh, because you know what? Because he was a Judas. But I appreciate you. Thank I, you. I
0: I want you to know that. Like, no, I I
1: I, I I I that feels good because there's lots of times where you don't feel like people appreciate you anymore, and that's one of the things. Like when you and I was. When the young guys come out, I like when they ask questions, and I usually embrace guys like that and go talk to guys like that. And one of the first thing they say that I hear probably the most is, "You're not anything like I thought you would be." And I'm like, "Well, what did you think I was going to be?" Ah, you just hear this and this and this, and I'm like, I- "I'm really not," you know.
0: Yeah, that's what that's. I I don't. I'm sure there are plenty of people who are like you know how wait. many
1: you know how many like people at the Bulls that I kind of you know. And friendly with, like the PR, they're like, you don't know how many times we have to go in the main office and defend that you're not this monster. And until you actually, like, I don't know how that reputation got that way. Because it's more than writing. Like, I've even had people that come out and fill in for the Trib that didn't know me, and they'll be like, and they'll talk to me, and they'll be like, um, oh, yeah, all we heard of the Trib is you were just an animal. And, and there's, you're really, you're just kind of, I'm like, yeah, I did. I'm just a dude trying to get a paycheck and do my job. That's it. I'm not an animal. I don't go out of my way to hurt people. I mean, I just, you know, so, but it's funny that a, a, a big city like this gets very high schooly at times, especially in the media. Yeah. I wonder if it'll ever swing back the other way. And that's
0: the reason why I think that it's important that you're out there because we need that. We do. I think as a I city, it. I think as, as a sports media, we need someone who's going to push. Because then you go, okay, it's okay to push a little bit. It's okay to to ruffle feathers occasionally, to hold organizations to the standard that they say that they are, that they hold themselves to. Yep. Don't tell me you're a playoff team. And then when you get criticized for
1: the way your season started, I'm the bad guy? Yeah. You told me. You were a playoff team. You were a playoff team. And three years ago, you told me we're blowing this thing up because we're sick of mediocrity and we're going to get back to a championship level. Okay. Let's see it. I'm waiting.
0: Well, I'm not surprised that uh, your episode is about one of the realest ones that I've had on the podcast. Is it? Yeah. Is there going to be trouble from this? Uh, I I think I can handle it. All right. I think I can handle it. I'm between like to me and the 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 golf the first golf interview. I don't know if there's ever been a realer interview than that. I mean Jason actually came to the house, like, and it was right after he had been let go. Yeah. And it was raw. Yeah, that had to be yeah.
1: It was rough. It was really, really rough. And like, you know how I feel about him. I'm uh that's your guy. I've never, I remember when Bernstein first brought, it was Goff and some other dude, up to old uh, Layman's Gym to play three-on-three. And then I didn't see him for like a couple years, and then he came to spring training. And I, I just have always, there's just something about him. I just, he's a real dude. He gets me. He lets me be me. And but knows that sometimes when I'm just doing it, it's just bullshit and just screwing around and doesn't, you know what I mean? And doesn't wear it and doesn't, and understands that life's too, there's more important stuff to, you know, he he gets the joke where a lot of people sometimes don't get the joke. And, and, and you know, and that's my fault because sometimes I, at least when I was younger, didn't have a good feel for the room. I had to read the room better. And you, you think you're there now? Yeah, I mean, I still have my moments, but you know, I mean, I'd say for the most part, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I mean, the, the worst thing, you know, the Twitter thing was, was awful. I felt awful about it. And like I said, that I had never gotten to kind of explain, and there's no, there's no, I was completely in the wrong, but at least explain what, how it led up to that. Um, but I probably needed that. I mean, that, you know, I, I, Sometimes you need a boot up your ass, and you have to accept that. You can't blame other people. That was all me. I did that. So I got to wear it. That's on the resume. You Google me, it's all bad shit. There's nothing great dad. His kids love him. His wife loves him. His parents love him. And n- none of that says that. He's got great friends. It says, Dead spin. Twitter asshole got me fired. Uh, kicked out of Canada, messed up this, voting for the MVP, uh, uh, war with Derrick Rose, which uh, it's not good stuff. It isn't like you read that and go, hey, I want to go hang with this guy. So I get it. But, you know, I, I probably have needed to wear a lot of that stuff. And you wear it and you move on and you try to be better. I'm a flawed person, but you got to try to be better. And that's what this whole thing is. So, um, you know, I wish there were things that I didn't do, but at the same time, I like who I am today. So you just wear it and you move on. Thanks for putting up with all of the technical issues. Oh dude, man. no problem. man. I loved it. I enjoyed it. This is what our talk show would have been like. We would have been off the air in like, like a, a week. week. It would have been about a week. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch, does Mitch
0: have a dump button? He'd have been he pounding. Does. He, does? he does? Oh. He, oh, Joe, he literally has a big red button. Oh. If his office were unlocked,
1: I would show you. But he has a big red button. He'd have been pounding that thing. Yeah. Hampton was was probably the smart decision. I mean, he brought we, in a lot of money. Uh, yeah, I get it. I wasn't going to beat an 85 bear. Yeah. I, I think a, it would have been a better show. We would well, in the long run.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it was valuable to me, and I, I Hamp has become like a lifelong right, friend. Right. Absolutely. Which is great. But yeah, we we would have we would have been like a comet, man. Yeah.
1: The shit would have been hot. <laughs> yeah. And then it would have gone. <laughs> it have been gone. Hey, remember those two idiots had that show? <laughs> yeah, Mitch dumped the crap out of that. It was good for about a week. I was just starting to get into it. it. Is good for a week. And where'd Lawrence go? He's in law <laughs> school now. He's like a lawyer. Oh. Uh, That's what Colin's he did. still at the Southtown. Oh no, <laughs> I don't know if the south Town exists anymore. Does it? I don't even know. I don't even. Uh, do they? I feel like they do. The trip bought it, but I don't know what they if they ate it or what they did. I don't even know. It's, it's enough.
0: But you are uh, you are a unique, unique individual, and, and I'm glad that we got you. together to do this. Man. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. I hope more than ten people listen to it. I can promise you that more than 10 people are going to listen to it. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you.
0: So that's Joe Cowley. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I enjoyed bringing it. I'm glad that he was available for it. I'm glad that people will get an opportunity to see a little bit of his softer side, which I don't think that he shows because he's Joe Cowley. You know what I mean? Like, you heard it you You heard it, but it was great to sit down and talk with him. I probably don't talk with him enough. Uh, he's one of my favorites. I'm not gonna lie to you. like he's one of my my favorite people to be around, and because of the way that he he challenges and I mean he challenges us he He challenges everyone who is involved in this thing to to make sure that we're paying attention to what's happening. So I hope you enjoyed that because I enjoyed sharing it with you and again. Thanks to Rebecca Ortiz. Honestly, and I know that my mic didn't sound great, but it's not a studio that's really set up for that. But we wouldn't have been able to do it if it wasn't for Rebecca Ortiz. So major, major shout out to her for getting this thing done. It would not have happened without her. And with that, I leave you where I find you. What's Joe's line? I I hunt so everyone else can eat. He's a crazy person. I'm very excited about next week. I already have one interview done, but um, you know next week's episode is episode 83, right? I'm working on something special for that. So make sure you stick around. Go back and listen to some of the previous episodes because they're really good. Like, let this be a portal into some of the conversations that you can hear on House of L. And again, big thanks to Joe Cowley. If you see my podcast, House of L, like, give it five stars. Go review it. Trust me. It helps with placement. As weird as that sounds. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the House of L podcast. I will talk to you next week for episode 83. Peace.